SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. And do you believe that the dead can have influence over the living? We are talking about the 1936 sequel to uh, Dracula, Dracula's Daughter. And I bet you that's a good bit of trivia, because if you ask people, well, what was the sequel Universal made to Dracula? People would more likely say Son of Dracula or House of Dracula. <laughs> But Dracula's daughter, for whatever reason, is um, is overlooked. Although I think in recent years it's been reappraised uh, quite favorably. Well, this this is a movie you don't you don't often see, and in fact, in my entire mm-hmm. experience, I think I've only ever seen this movie on television once, and that was in that Dracula marathon on the Sci Fi Channel in the late nineties. I was talking about in the previous episode. Right, so this is directed by Lambert Hillier, produced by E.M. Asher, screenplay by Garrett Fort, uh, starring Otto Kruger, Gloria Holden, and Marguerite Churchill, uh, music by Heinz Romheld, cinematography George Robinson, edited by Milton Carruth. It came out in 1936, running time is 73 minutes, which movies you know were shorter back then. Um, not, I couldn't really find any information on the box office, but this must have done okay, because it, it led them to do um, Son of Dracula later on. And... This is really uh, ahead of its time in, in a number of ways, one of which is it begins right where the original Dracula ends. And, and you don't see that except for like Porky's 2 the next day or something. Yeah, and, and we are not kidding. There's an establishing mm-hmm. shot of Van Helsing just after he's driven a stake into Dracula's heart, just kind of looking over his work uh, confidently. And these two British police officers find Renfield's body in the state it was left in in the previous film and even comment on it. And and I, I love that he's getting arrested for what happened in the first film, because as far as the police know, they go, they see Renfield's dead body uh, at the bottom of the stairs. They see a man with a, a you know, staked through through the heart. Uh, well, beyond that, Van Helsing even says, you know, he point he points to Dracula's body and says, "I'm responsible. I did that." I guess he, he's he's a man. Uh, he's like George Washington. He cannot tell a lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm thinking when I when I first saw this movie, it it was at a library in college, and when uh, Universal did those wonderful uh, sort of you know three DVD sets uh, of the mummy and the draculas and the frankenstein movies right um and so it was it was in there i think on a disc uh, alongside son of dracula um and yeah i don't think i ever heard of this one being on tv i certainly believe that sci-fi channel did it at one point probably amc did too but you think of i hope so let's watch yeah but i mean you think of oh let's watch uh dracula's daughter and uh 
What I thought was ridiculous is on the credits, it says, based on the uh, story Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker, but that's an outright lie. Well, I, I looked into that. Uh, yeah. Th- that came up uh, doing my research. So what what ended up happening is that uh, there was a producer who bought the rights to Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker, uh, and it, it's theorized that the, his whole motivation for doing that was to tie up a possible sequel. He later sold the rights to the film rights to that story to the producers of this film for a, a pretty sizable profit. Uh, and apparently part of the reason why the studio had to do that, had to buy it back, is that uh, Bram Stoker's agreement with various filmmakers he sold the rights to his stories to was they were limited entirely to characters that were in the stories. You couldn't bring in outside characters or characters from the expanded Dracula mythos, which is why I assume John and Mina are not in this movie. Uh, They aren't even mentioned. And Dracula's guest has a woman vampire in it, and I guess their justification is, oh, well, that woman vampire is the Dracula's daughter from this, uh, this, this film. Oh, and Dracula's Guest was, was a short story published after the death of Bram Stoker, and it, it is assumed to be a deleted first chapter to Dracula, where it's um kind kind of a standalone story. Well, it's, uh, it's like a, a an unnamed Englishman who's probably Harker stops at a uh, stops at a town outside of Transylvania to stay the night, and just sees a lot of spooky goings on, including a beautiful vampire woman in a crypt who is later killed when a bolt of lightning strikes the crypt that she's in. Yeah. Um, I, I was reading some about the, the making of this picture and originally they were going to uh, have this be sort of a more normal kind of sequel with Bella Lugosi playing Dracula again. Uh, it was even going to be directed by James Whale who directed the first two Frankenstein pictures. That really would have been something, but for whatever reason they couldn't quite get that package together. And so it, that's why that's part of the reason why it took so long. I mean, you you had five years between sequels, and you might think, well, that's not that long. But I mean, look at look at the mummy stuff, right? Where they came out with a new picture every year, a lot of which used stock footage from the old pictures. Um, so th- that it took so long for Dracula, which was the first uh, kind of of these classic Universal horror pictures, to get a sequel, I think is is notable. Um, Oh, and it was David O. Selznick was the producer who bought the rights to Dracula's Guest and then later sold those rights to Universal for this movie. Yeah, I know that, that's a pretty uh, pretty canny move. I, I've heard of worse things being done. So uh, there you go. I mean, at the we were talking uh, off mic before we started recording. This movie has a, kind of a classic character you see in these Universal horror pictures of kind of the the bumbling policeman, which you kind of got in the first film with the medical uh, assistant guy at the uh, sanitarium. Well, there, there's re- they really they really ham it up in this one because the the two the two Scotland Yard police officers there's a there's a senior police sergeant who's always talking about his stripes and then there's the then there's the other policeman who is I guess a non commissioned <laughs> policeman who's just always comically reacting to stuff and in fact in the in the opening scene where they keep finding bodies and and Van Helsing confesses to the murder of Dracula the the other the non-commissioned officer all he says is oh 
Yeah. They're just mugs uh, for the camera. You know, these guys usually have fluffy mustaches and all this stuff. It, it adds a bit of comedy, which is unexpected, but it does make sense because, I mean, the beginning is pretty heavy. Like, one of the main heroes from the original film is uh, getting caught by the police, even though he, he killed a bad guy who er, killed a phantasmagorial creature that, that killed other people. Um, to the appearance of the police, it's a man killing another man who admitted to it on the scene. And uh, oddly enough, instead of hiring a lawyer, he uh, looks up one of his students, who is now a psychiatrist, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, played by Otto Kruger. Yeah, and he is so... And and he is a psychiatrist. He doesn't believe in the supernatural. So he this is something that's very strange is this movie keeps changing what kind of movie it's in. Mm-hmm. The cops might as well be from an Abbott and Costello comedy. But um, the psychiatrist and his personal assistant, they are in a screwball comedy all their own. And then sometimes it's a horror movie and sometimes it's a suspense movie. But it keeps oscillating between those four genres. I think that makes this movie in, in a few ways more interesting than the original Dracula, but it also makes it, I don't know, less satisfying overall, at least. I mean, the original Dracula had some comedy and stuff, but you have this classic sort of plot you're working on here. It just feels like they're they're winning it a lot of the time. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, to, to the point where, like, for instance, we mentioned, so, like, a big part of this thread through this movie is Van Helsing wants to prove that he is sane and that he actually killed a real live monster. And I love that that, uh, that Garth even pointed out, well, if I prove you're sane, they're going to hang you. Uh, mm. But, you know, well, Mina, John and Mina were there. They saw the whole thing. They could testify on Van Helsing's behalf. But they just don't exist for this movie. They have vanished. Even a line of dialogue, oh, John and Mina are on their honeymoon. They can't be accessed at this time. You know, oh, yeah. it could have been something. You had telephones, though, back then, right? So, um, who knows? We, we also get the, the titular character comes in fairly late in the story, Countess Maria Zaleska, uh, who claims to be Dracula's daughter. And she has a manservant, Sandor, played by Irving Pichel. And Sandor is really creepy. Just this big, silent hulk of a man. Well, he has this amazing, brooding stare. Mm-hmm. So, have you ever have you ever had that friend who who like? Have you ever had that friend who, on your darkest day, kind of leans in and goes, "You know, I can kill him if you want. If you want it, I can. I can kill him." Yes, that's what this guy is. Uh, <laughs> And, and you know, I I don't know if everyone has a friend like that, um, but uh, yeah, that that like I get the same terrifying energy off of him that I got from my creepy friend <laughs> who would lean in and go, "I can kill him," and I don't think they were joking. And that's that's the part. Like you could be like, "Let's go kill him," you know. You could say that in a in a funny sort of way, and but yeah, a regular it, goodbye that, Earl scenario. Uh huh. Yeah, but someone just just taking it too far I, I know exactly what you mean and sandor just uh, that he has like almost no dialogue i think makes his character all the stronger um so zaleska has this ring that hypnotizes albert and they get dracula's body i wish they would have made like more of a deal of like the stealing of the body and what transporting is- it and and kind of have some suspense because they get it pretty easy all things considered yeah it, it, it is true yeah she goes into the police uh the police man's office and uh, mesmerizes uh, the the bumbling police officer uh, who who presumably she, she later kills because when he's found 
he's just sort of sitting at a, at a at the desk with a dumb expression on his face, but then he just falls over dead when he's found by the inspector. Um, I want to say something about Dracula's body, though. Um, there is uh, we we only get like one really decent shot of Dracula's body, but damned if they don't have a convincing Bella Lugosi head on it. Yeah, like it it looks real good. I mean, they're they're limited with what you could show, but I think that you know right off the bat they they burn Dracula's body and uh, she, she she performs an exorcism on it. Yeah, it does an exorcism, and you know it, it, she figures this will make it so she's she's no longer a vampire, which is a interesting wrinkle to the mythos. And uh, Gloria Holden as, as Dracula's daughter is is really good. Like she may not have like all the dialogue in the world, but she just has these kind of the same intense stare that Bella Lugosi had has these beautiful eyes uh, and, and just carries herself really strongly in, in these scenes uh, in a way you often didn't see women do in, um, in horror films or any films really period at the time. Well, she, she has a great aristocratic bearing. There's this, there's this old world aristocratic bearing that comes across in her performance. The uh, and I really I really like that that exorcism scene uh, and this is this is an interesting thing uh, because this was this was made during the old production code I believe before the Hayes code became a thing so it's interesting what you see on screen and of course one of the things you would have never seen on screen in the Hayes code was a full on body being immolated with no ambiguity but we see the body we see track of this body on on the buyer. And we see it lit on fire, and we see its clothes burn away. We see that corpse thoroughly immolated. Uh, in in and, and I just love how matter of fact she is as she's giving as she's reciting the exorcism right over it. And, and in the exorcism, she invokes both God and the devil. Yep. Um, which even mentioning the devil, I think, would have been problematic uh, with the Hayes Code, uh, as, as strict as that could be. Uh, you have, I mean. I just get such a good sense of from um, Gloria Holden's performance of just the the sadness, right? She wants to not have to feast on humans and, and kind of live in the shadows. And yet the frustration she must feel um, it would have been nice if we would have seen some scenes about that. But, you know, she still has, has the thirst, still has to feast on people and um, to get well, I- by and all these things. Actually, that's something that's something I want to I want to address uh, in this in this film. So, do you believe that uh, that the Countess Zaleska is a vampire, or do you believe she is delusional and only thinks that she's a vampire? Hmm. I I think she's delusional. Uh, and the only reason being, they don't play with all the, the shape-shifting stuff that was such a big deal in the first movie, or they don't... Well, exactly. We, we never yeah. see her exhibit any, any vampire powers. We never, we never see her attack. So the puncture wounds on her victim could have been inflicted any number of, of ways. Um, the, the other thing that jumps out at me is the only really spooky thing she, we ever see her do is, is uh, her hypnotism. But there's even a scene where Dr. Garth is talking to another doctor about the difference between superstition and science and where they overlap. And he even talks about, you know, a hundred years, they called it mesmerism and witchcraft. But today we call it hypnosis and it's a useful tool in therapy. And I, I really feel like there really is an undercurrent that, that 
Zaleska isn't a vampire and never was a vampire. She just thinks she she is. And although based on some dialogue that her man that Sandor the manservant has later, he completely buys into that delusion as well because we find we find out that uh, at first you think that maybe he has feelings for her, but in the end it's made absolutely clear he's working with her because he was promised immortality. Right. He's the familiar, so to speak. Oh yes, and and um, he's a more stable Renfield. Yeah, yeah, stable, and then more, uh, more physically uh, imposing, <laughs> more useful Renfield. In other words, maybe less entertaining, but more useful. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I, I just look at this plot like I, I don't say this often, but like you could really do an interesting remake on this movie. I think. Oh, absolutely! By, by trying to delve into those themes, you know, whether it's real or whether it's fake, or you could up a, a sort of maybe like a feminist angle or, or do something more with the family of Dracula. I mean, there's so much you could do with this concept. And uh, I mean, that this, that this movie exists at all, I, I'm grateful for it. But you see, I, I see, you know, some sort of missed opportunities. Um, and and we also get a, a famous scene with um, not very subtle kind of lesbian uh, themes going on. Oh yes, there is. Uh, so the uh, the ca- the countess decides. Well, I need I need to take uh, take my mind off things. I shall paint tonight. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sandor, find me a model. And Sandor, just being like creepy, like go- goes out and finds this young woman named Lily and says, "Oh, we'll give you food, wine, and money if uh, if you'll pose for a painting." And like it's it's kind of strange because it doesn't look like she needs the money. She seems to right. be. Well like she, she, she seems to be pretty well off, but she goes along with it anyway. I'm one. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if she was supposed to be like an innocent street waif, but she just got over costumed. But yeah, she's ta- she's taken into uh, she's taken into the countess's studio, which right, right off the bat, that's something you got to look out for. If if a person says they're an artist but they don't have any art supplies. That's a red flag, <laughs> but there's no easels, canvases, or paints in the Countess Studios. Um, but it, it's really just like, it's it's fascinating the way the Countess is always staring at this young woman, and, you know, the woman's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do, uh, like, you know, you can get undressed behind that curtain. I'm doing a, uh, you don't need to pose nude, I'm, I'm just doing a study of, of the young woman's neck and shoulders. Oh, like, do you want me to pull these straps down? Oh, yes, the shoulders must be bare. Like, it's, it, it is, I, I think you, you texted me when you were watching this, you describing the scene as, as, as sapphic, and I don't think they're, I don't think they're lesbian undertones. There's just, there's just lesbian tones in this, in this scene. Right. It, it's not subtle. You're right. And, uh, cause it, cause it, it's, it's not like, you know, she just wants to do a painting and then slowly those vampire urges take her over. Mm, like it, yeah. it is, it is from the beginning. She seems to be erotically obsessed, uh, with Lily the moment she walks into the studio. Oh, and just the ways they can do this sort of eroticism in a, a mid 1930s movie, I think is, is interesting in that you're, you're basically just shooting it with a close up, you know, basically like a chest shot from the the chest uh, to the head, uh, you know, kind of back and forth uh, over the shoulder and so forth. Just these simple shots, but just the way it's lit, the way, uh, especially the the nerves you, you see on uh, on Lily, Lily, the young woman they get played by Nan Gray, uh, the the nervousness, the the tension, and she does it, and you know, and then. 
I have to say, like, when they get attacked, you know, much like the original Dracula film, it's not blood everywhere. It's not, they don't show the teeth going into the neck. They, they don't even show the neck wounds. They just ver- no, refer on no, multiple they don't. instances yeah. to two punctures on the neck. But also, kind of much like the original Dracula film, you have a, a lot of, of the picture involving someone that survives a vampire attack and is examined by uh, professionals and they're trying to get her back to life and all these things. Oh, speaking of getting back to life, so, you know, a- after after the Countess feeds on... Uh, feeds on Lily. She's she's abandoned. She's uh, she's she's taken to a hospital. Um, we, we later find out that she was found raving on the street. But she's been in the hospital. They've been getting her transfusion. She's been catatonic. The established so there's there was a really neat operating theater establishing shot in the first film. That exact same footage is reused in this movie. And then they just cut to a close-up of the doctors hovering around Lily, discussing mm. her medical her medical condition. But the establishing shot with all the with all the medical students in the wings observing is the exact same shot. Well, such things were done a lot. They weren't shy to oh, reuse yeah. footage. And I think back in a day before there was any home video of any sort, really, you had to you know buy the film reels in a projector, and you had to be quite wealthy to do that. The audiences well, wouldn't be expected to remember such things as a shot. Oh, I know this from the other film. Well, they were film nerds even back then. Although uh, I, yes. I wonder, I wonder if that's just the one set they didn't have because this movie does mm-hmm. reuse a number of sets from the original Dracula redressed. So I don't know if those those sets were in storage or if they were being reused for other productions or, or, or what. But uh, it's 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 interesting to see what gets reused from the first film and what doesn't. Yeah, certainly. Um, so we we go along with. All this, and uh, I don't know, I, I think in a few ways I felt really bad for Lily in, in ways that I didn't with uh, Lucy in the first Dracula film. And I think maybe because we know so little about her, and, and she's just sort of an innocent that was invited over and, and all these things. Well, I think it's in in part, I think it's because, at, le- at least with, with Lucy, Lucy is a bit of a thrill seeker. She goes wander. She goes wandering mm-hmm. into danger. Like she, she knows. She already knows Dracula is this dark, mysterious figure. But she decides, what the heck? But with Lily, Lily is kind of from beginning to end an innocent victim in all this. Right, and um, so the she goes to the Doctor Garth, and and they learn that uh, it was the Countess Seleska that attacked her. But well, it's really interesting because because uh, Doctor Garth. Is good, has this like hypnosis machine he's going to use on her, and it's a really neat scene where he he sort of brings her into this weird trance, and she starts like recounting the evening's events, like oh no, the ring, the bookstore's closed, ah, and has this terrifying scream, and then just like drops dead in shock, and it's it's a really powerful scene, and I love that it even it you know it even it even comes up later, you know, like when. Because you know, of course, at the end, the the Countess uh, kidnaps Janet, uh, Gareth's assistant slash love interest, and it, it, she even flat out, you know, is like, "I'll bring her out of it myself." And, oh yes, like like Lily, the girl who died. It's just, I love that it's not a one off. That 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 helps build horror for later on. Definitely, and um, also much like the the first Dracula film. Uh, in this one, Drac- Dracula's daughter isn't in the movie that much. Well, she kind of she kind of comes in and out, but she gets the most of her screen time when she is on in the scene. 
Yep. Um, and and it's strangely enough, and, and I, I know this this is probably going to come off as kind of regressive, but I really do like the way that both the Countess and Janet compete over uh, Doctor Garth. There's it's even fun. That, there's even that great scene where uh, where where uh, where the Countess comes to comes to Garth's office just as uh, Janet is leaving after having resigned as his assistant, but still st- still like still following him around to take notes. And she's like, I'm here to see the doctor. Oh, I'm sorry you missed the doctor. He just left. And just after she says that, the nurse <laughs> opens a door and says, "Oh, doctor, uh, may I leave early? I I I must have I must go for dinner for supper." <laughs> <laughs> There's just those great looks that they give each other. Yeah, it's just so um, absurd. You know, it's a, it's a bit of fun between between those characters. Well, I guess and, we ought to talk about the relationship between Garth and Janet because sure. because it is a straight up screwball comedy relationship. They they they're always sniping at each other, but they clearly have affection for each other. It's one mm-hmm. of those things like like would would you two just fuck each other? Just yeah. just fuck each other. Get it over with. Yeah. yeah, get that out of the way. And just the way like Janet like pranks him, like when 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 Doctor Garth has his first appointment when he's when he's counseling uh, Countess Zaleska, and he gets what he thinks is an emergency phone call, and it's Janet with a bad German accent. You know, <laughs> Doctor, you must help us. It's from the zoo. The elephants they are hallucinating, and they think they see pink people. Yeah. Oh, this is so crazy. Which then later, comical misunderstanding, because when he gets an actual emergency phone call, he assumes it's Janet, and he just starts hurling invective into the phone. But it's actually the, the it's actually the uh, presiding the presiding surgeon for St. Mary's Hospital. Right. I mean, it's nice you have this kind of, although not tonally consistent, you have this wacky moment of, of comedy, um, kind of before the the climax, in which uh, the Countess captures Janet and Dr. Garth has to go uh, to Castle. All the way to Transylvania. Yeah, all the way to Transylvania so, uh, somehow. Um, oh, something I like, and I, I like to think that this is a bit of continuity because he goes to the, the village that's outside of uh, that's outside of Dracula's castle and yeah. there's there's like oh there's a wedding feast going on and everyone's like super celebratory and like it's such a more vibrant place and clearly like it's so vibrant because they've been without Dracula for so long. You're right. It's oh oh and there's even a bit of like there's even this, this bit of sexual humor when the one guy's talking to the bride and the groom's like oh well <laughs> we celebrate but it will be night soon uh I mean uh it will be night soon uh and he's like <laughs> clearly given the old nudge nudge say no more. Yes, yes, yes. Um but yeah, so, finally, and of course, they also forgot that Dracula's brides exist. But it all it all ends in this uh, showdown in in uh, Dracula's castle, and I love the way the peasants respond when the light goes on in one of the uh, one of the towers in Castle Dracula, and all the peasants just that's it, we're done, and they all start running into their houses, <laughs> and that cab driver has to be bribed to take people to take to take a Garth and his party halfway to the castle. Yeah, I mean they they know what uh what all that means, of course, and uh, it's it's really quite quite something. Um, and that when you go into Castle Dracula, I mean, why didn't they use Dracula's brides? Wouldn't that have been cool? Dracula's daughter plus three Dracula brides, four female vampires. Presumably, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, you know that's true. Because the, the, she even talk, she even talks about her own mother, who I guess was just like a peasant girl seduced by Dracula. But but yeah, there it would be neat to to get a few more to get a few more vampires in it. I guess it's a diminishing return. There's there's at least four vampires in the first movie. There's maybe not even one in this movie. Yeah, although, and you have to wonder. I guess Castle Dracula isn't doesn't have keys or something. It doesn't have a locked door. It's just. Well, wide open. Well, remember though that the countess is setting a trap. She wants yes. Garth to find right. her and Janet's hypnotized body because she she wants to bargain with him and like I'll let I'll let Janet live if you come with me. You, you know, you uh, whether it's like it's a partner or an advisor, she needs she needs she wants to force the doctor to to be her personal whatever. Uh, potentially till the end of time, I guess if she is a vampire and it's and oh, there's also a speak, speaking of another thing with with uh, with like sapphic undertones. There's that that scene where the countess is just hovering over Janet's body, and it is yeah. so prolonged. It is, and um, I mean, it does make me wonder: would like a is a psychiatrist vampire stronger than a normal vampire? Well, you know, that's something. That's something that. I was, I was kept waiting to happen is we see the countess mesmerize several people. She never once attempts to do it to Dr. Garth. And I kept waiting for a scene where she would try and Dr. Garth's like, I know how this works. It's not, it's not going to affect me. Right. And it, they say he's a psychiatrist, but they don't really do uh, a whole lot well, with it. Really. We never, we never see him interacting with patients. We only see him interacting with vampire victims and potential vampires. Could you know if if um, the countess is uh, could be a fake vampire? Could Doctor Garth be a fake psychiatrist? Uh, well, I know it's true. We never see his diploma. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and now that I think about it, that Professor Van Helsing is a specialist in diseases of the blood, n- not psychiatry. So, like, was was he studying under Van Helsing like for pre med? Before he decided to specialize in mental health, you know, maybe for whatever reason they were short on professors the one uh, term, and and Van Helsing had to teach biology one hundred and two. It's like those adjuncts who have to do like twelve different jobs. Yeah. Um, oh, that's another thing that occurred to me is that is that that uh, is that, that Van Helsing presume like he's still he's still wanted for the murder of Dracula, but Van Helsing gets to come along on this adventure to Transylvania, so. Did the charges get dropped? They do. Yeah, they make such a big deal of that plot at the beginning, and they completely drop it. Even if you had, like, the police follow... I mean, even that that Van Helsing isn't involved at the end of the film is pretty ridiculous. Like, (laughs) can can you imagine Van Helsing going to Count Dracula's castle, which he doesn't get to do in the first film, to help them? That would have really been something. I mean, presumably he would suspect there's other vampires there. I could totally see him wanting to do that. It's just like how, like, or, or, or like, like, okay, Van Helsing, you can go on this trip, but you better come back for your trial. Well, you know, maybe they do a jailbreak, Van, this is more like pitch a sequel at this point almost, but Van Helsing, (laughs) you know, escapes and the police, like, are on the, the, the ship behind him heading to Transylvania, uh, and going like, oh, he's going to that scary castle. He is, he is. Yes, yes. We'd better go catch Mr. Van Helsing, Captain. <laughs> All that nonsense. Oh, but. man. But, but at the end, we, we get a uh, a climax that I think is, frankly, 
better than what we get in the original Dracula film. Well, there's certainly more going on because uh, initially Sandor is trying to kill... It has a bow and arrow and is trying to kill the Doctor, but in the end, when he fires his last arrow, the arrow goes through Zaleska's heart. And this creates some interesting ambiguity because either... He was trying because she's still like right by the doctor. Either she he was trying to kill the doctor and he just missed and hit his mistress accidentally, or at that point he realized, oh, I'm never going to get my promised immortality. It's going to go to the doctor. Well, if I can't have her, no one can. And then he he kills Zaleska out of some out of some sense of of, of jealousy or or whatnot. I like that. I like that we're left guessing as far as that goes, but, you know, she stumbles back and she dies. And, you know, Van Helsing points out, ah, the wooden shaft through the arrow, through the, of the arrow, through the heart. Only by piercing the heart with wood can a vampire die. And it's like, it's one of those things. Yeah, or she could have just been a person shot with an arrow. She still might not be a vampire. Right, and Van Helsing just doing, um, so I did make a mistake, he does show up, but not, not in a way that's especially impactful. Um, it, it just really could have been something, I don't know. Like, But, but that the way she gets hit by the heart and the way, through the arrow and the way she falls down, at least it's a more direct form of action than at the end of uh, the original Dracula film where it's just so passive. Also, I'd like to point out that... Uh, Sandor uh, is is also killed just after he shoots that arrow. Uh, he's sh- shot by a policeman from Scotland Yard who is acting well out of his jurisdiction. Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe that's how they got Van Helsing. He gets to leave the country if he's accompanied by a Scotland Yard detective. Maybe the Scotland Yard is actually a secret... Um, oh, I don't know. Like a MI6 agent. <laughs> jurisdiction the, to do as he pleases for the queen I've got a license to kill I do I do they called me double O goat that doesn't even make sense okay so yeah Dracula's daughter um I, I enjoyed this you know the, the different tones kind of yank you back and forth but there's enough interesting thing and uh Gloria Holden as the titular character is such a good presence i will give this a sequel yes i'm gonna give it a sequel yes as well i really enjoyed this um oh one other observation i had so the the previous film dracula it's it's clearly set around the same time of the novel kind of like turn of the century era this movie if you go by the phones it quickly accelerates from turn of the century all the way to what would have been the modern era of the 1930s. Because at first there's no phones, then there's the use of a telegraph, then there's the use of one of those old-fashioned stick funnel phones, I don't know what those are called, and finally a rotary telephone is used. <laughs> the last shot scene with the telephone is a what would have been a contemporary rotary telephone. Hmm. There's also a really inventive shot. Uh, this is when, uh, I believe when Janet... I'm trying to remember if it's when Janet goes missing. Yeah, I think it's when Janet goes missing. There's this really neat shot where it's one sustained shot panning through a really intricately designed set to create a montage where 
the film from the ca- from a camera that has a picture of Janet goes through a developing process, is developed, goes through a, pr- a mimeograph process, gets mimeographed, goes in a layout process, and in one sustained shot, we go from a piece of film to a printed London newspaper that has her on the cover. Yeah, that's a pretty good transition. Um, I mean, it is amazing. It, it is one of the it is one of the mo- most well directed sequences in in this movie. I love how the New York Times review of Dracula's Daughter uh, praises Gloria Holden, saying she is a remarkably convincing Batwoman. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's. Oh, quite... there was also oh there was another there was another quote. Oh yeah, that New York Times. Uh, also, a review also said, "Be sure to bring the kitties." <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, like, you're not going to see any nudity or gore or anything in this movie. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider this necessarily a, unless you're a family of monster lovers. This would not be a, a family film. It's like when I worked at Blockbuster Video. This family came up to my uh, register, and and they were. Um, from some other country visiting the States and uh, their English wasn't so good. And they said, is this movie good for our six year old daughter? And first off, like, I don't know who your daughter is. Like what kind of question is that to ask a video store employee, but that's something you get asked a lot and you have to make judgment calls. Cause if they come back and say, this was too violent for my kid, you get in trouble, even though it has nothing to do with you really. Anyhow, the movie was a horror film called spider. And I said, no, you might want to go to the kids' video section. And they thought, oh, Spider, it's an animal. It's a children's movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> Terrifying animal. <laughs> Suppose so, you know, and it could be Charlotte's Web or I don't know. Even that's sort of sad and intense for... I don't know if I'd sell that, well, show that to a little kid, but... Well, I'm get, you know what? I want to... Hold on. I want to see if I can find the case for this movie. It was called Spider, you say? I believe so. Uh, 2002? That, that, yeah, that'd be about right. Ooh, okay, so 2002 spot. Okay, so I'm looking at the cover for the video. It's like, it's a creepy shot of a spider web, a creepy shot of a guy with a doctor's bag in an alley, real Jack the Ripper vibes, this brooding half face taking up the left the left third yep. of, of the case. Yeah, this is, this is definitely, definitely... Oh, and it's a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, you don't want wow. to show a kid a Cronenberg movie. Huh, yes. I mean, I guess I don't expect everybody to know Cronenberg, what it means, but Cronenberg is now an adjective and a verb. <laughs> so. It is, and, and I mean, the stuff he's done lately is quite different from what he started, ugh, excuse me, his career with. So, um, with that in mind, let's do pitch a sequel. I think what, what I would do, so, with the, the end scene of this, you would... Um, have it would start where this one leaves off. You have Dracula's daughter, you know, breathing her last breath, and then it would flash back to her being born as an infant, and her family is so excited to have a child, and they said, "Oh, she has such a cute smile," and then she smiles and has like vampire fangs, and they scream. <laughs> so appalled, they they sort of give her up into to the orphanage. They say, "This is a monster. We cannot raise her." The orphanage won't accept her, but they they drop her off at the church where a pair of nuns agree to uh to raise her and this would be about a a teenaged dracula daughter being raised by nuns and it would end with her going to america Hmm. and it would be called 
Dracula's daughter's nuns. <laughs> Not Dracula's granddaughter. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I, I want to do another one that, that takes off immediately where this one le- uh, leaves off. So I guess, yeah, the movie will, the movie will start over uh, the Countess's uh, dead body and, you know, uh, Janet's being rescued. The premise for my sequel is that uh, turns out the Countess couldn't resist and has been feeding off of Janet uh, and has fed off of Janet just enough that when they return Janet to London and decide to get married, she starts to transform into a vampire. And so Janet gets more and more creepy. Janet starts to become uh, obsessed with with different young women. She starts feeding on uh, Gareth's uh, Garth's patients, uh, and finally, and Garth, Garth is going to be in denial and is going to be no mm. Van Helsing, you're crazy. My fiance can't be a can't be a vampire. Uh, but in in the end, he's going to discover that uh, that his fiance on their on their their very wedding night. Uh, she her plan is to after they're on the honeymoon turn him into a vampire so they can be together forever uh so the way it's going to end is they are going to go through with the marriage ceremony but that's what's going to going to really turn things because it becomes undeniable when during the wedding ceremony all the religious imagery starts to repel her uh and and so you know sends her sends her off into a frenzy. So the way uh, the movie's finally going to end is Doctor Garth is going to get Janet cornered and together and with Van Helsing presiding because I just like this imagery. They're going to finish the wedding ceremony. The two are going to be wed, but then he's going to realizing that neither one can live without the other. Uh, Gareth embraces uh, Janet. And then they both jump into a fire. Oh, that's then dark. hopefully, once and for all, ending the scourge of vampirism upon the earth. Uh, and I'm going to call that uh, I'm going to call that Dracula's little dividend. DLD. I like it. Yeah. Oh, that's another uh, thing I wanted to point out. As far as uh, so, the sort of modern pop culture version of vampirism. This movie establishes how vampirism is transferred. Uh, because if you look at a lot of the old stories, if you're killed by a vampire, you become a vampire. If a vampire feeds on you, there's a risk you'll transform into a vampire. But the procedure for transferring vampirism as outlined in this movie is the one we still use today. It was very much popularized in Interview with a Vampire, but it's pretty much now the default, uh, which is that a vampire feeds off you get you weak from blood loss and then feed you their then the vampire feeds the victim their own blood and that's what causes the transformation i see the embrace we used to call it in the 90s oh yes all the amber and rice uh stuff certainly vampire the masquerade the red Buffy kiss the, the crimson Slayer. kiss yeah uh, all sorts of uh all sorts of good things okay <laughs> So, uh, what you're watching? Uh, I believe been, we've been watching some of the same stuff with the season three of the toys that made us. Uh, yeah, I did finally. I finally saw the Ninja Turtle episode. I really enjoyed that. I teared up a bit at the end because they 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 end the documentary. So Eastman, uh, Kevin Eastman, and Jim Laird, the creators of the Teenage Mutant Peter Ninja Laird. Turtles. Or Peter Laird. I'm sorry, Peter Laird. Yeah, they sort of went their separate ways over the past like decade and a half there's a really touching reunion in their old offices. 
and it was really great seeing them together again. And they're just on the table, just taking turns uh, drawing Ninja Turtles, and the other one will ink it. Um, and did you see the Power Rangers one? No, regrettably, I okay. still haven't seen the Power Rangers one. I might, I might be watching that one later today. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, I mean, safe to say that season three of the Toys That Made Us is very good. Um, the wrestling one I found especially interesting because they go into, uh, you know, different de- backstabbing uh, business deals with the different toy oh. companies going from, uh, you know, sometimes the people that once made WWF would go and make ECW toys or WCW it also works as a little sort of history of uh, professional wrestling um, after uh, uh, Vince McMahon uh, took over from his father. Huh, interesting. So pretty good stuff. Um, I saw a movie in the theater last Sunday, uh, the new Charlie's Angels movie. How is it, and does it have Tim Curry? Um, It does not have Tim Curry, who was killed in the first movie. His character is killed, <laughs> not the actor. He, he uh, can always have a twin. Yes. Um, and no, I did not really like it. I, for some reason, they made it more like a Bourne Identity movie. More of a serious plot, more more action, more desaturated colors, less um, less cheesecake, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, with the kind of cheesy outfits and the sexiness, they kind of downplay those things. Um there's a lot of not very subtle lines about like, I'm a woman. I can do anything that a man can. Like it, it's, it could be handled a bit, I think more subtly with the theme. Uh, my wife really liked it. I, I wasn't too crazy about it. Um, Patrick Stewart does have a, a more meaty role than you might figure based on the previews. And, and there is a, a good running gag about how um, Bosley is not a character's name, but a rank in the Charlie's angels organization. And that there's several Bosleys in different countries <laughs> and so forth. But um, oddly enough, that uh, according to a scene in the continuity, this takes place after the Cameron Diaz Charlie's Angels. Well, yeah, because that happened like 20 years ago. <laughs> yes. and uh, but, but like it is officially a continuation of that franchise then? Or? Yes. I, I mean, it's not, huh. not, not a strong continuation, but they they have some poorly photoshopped images showing uh, characters' relationships to them. Uh, that they didn't get any of them um, in for a cameo is a bit odd, but you do get uh, at least one of the original angels from the TV show in a cameo at the end credits. Um, the movie did not do very well, so I don't know if we'll get a second one with this cast. Um, and even just a, f- uh, a little bit less than a decade ago, they tried to do a new Charlie's Angels on TV that didn't last past a season. And that was after She Spies, which was just Charlie's Angels, except they're also James Bond. She Spies is not that one with uh, Pamela Anderson, is it? No, no, that was VIP. VIP, was which completely is completely different. Com- that one, she's a bodyguard. Uh, yeah, but similar with the cheesiness, though, isn't it? Well, well, she she spies like I think VIP. For my memory, VIP was just cheesy. She Spies was sort of camp on purpose. I see. Like it was very deliberate when they did something silly. Uh, I remember the episode that sticks out in my mind because when it was on, it was originally, I believe it was originally a primetime network show, but it got bumped. Where was it bumped? It was bumped to after Saturday Night Live. 
And there was a night where I stayed up in college. I stayed up to watch SNL. And She Spice comes on and I just watch it. And it was actually kind of fun where they go on the, the trail of this like assassin called like the Puma. And then the big twist is it turns out their Bosley, this kind of like nebbish guy, he is the Puma but he doesn't know it because he was subjected to secret brainwashing experiments. So whenever he leaves their offices, he gets activated and turned into this ruthless, <laughs> bloodthirsty assassin. Well, that's not half bad. Uh, okay. So, good old... Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's a bit what I've been watching. What have you been watching? So I did uh, watch uh, Dolomite is my name. Oh, yes. Uh, I think I talked about that recently. So what did you think? And had you seen Rudy Ray Moore pictures before? Because I had not. I, I have. I do. I, as I've said before, I have an unironic love for black exploitation. So I have seen some Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, I had I've actually like had been listening to some of his comedy over the past years. Uh, this this movie was everything I wanted and more. When at first, when I um, this is the first R-rated movie uh, Eddie Murphy has done in twenty years. The last one being Life with uh, him and uh, Martin Lawrence. He, it is great hearing him swear again. Like th- this movie, this movie plays up to all of his strength. Like because really Eddie Eddie Murphy is at his best when he's going a little bit when he's going very dirty, a little bit over the top, and a little bit camp. And Rudy Ray Moore, his is all of those things are in his persona. Eddie Murphy did gain weight for the role, but not like a lot of weight. Like I looked at photos of the original Rudy Ray Moore, and he's not. That's not, not that you have to be the exact well, size of the original person, but he gets the attitude, he gets that voice, he gets oh, the yeah. the, the pitter patter. And I mean, they on purpose got Snoop Dogg in a very small role because he claims, I think rightly, that Snoop Dogg wouldn't exist without Rudy Ray Moore, and Rudy Ray Moore was later. Um, kind of uh, recognized as a godfather of of rap because he would do these kind of he'd do these comedy routines but they'd have a musical background and it would be like in syncopation with or I, I assume it was the other way around the person playing the instruments would kind of do it in syncopation with what he was saying like it was very much its own uh, animal well yeah like his, his the the sort of like the the rhyming the rhyming street pattern that he that he popularized with his albums like that that has the same roots that rap has and like the the swagger and the attitude of Rudy Ray Moore on stage that is the same swagger and attitude we see in so many rappers particularly of like the the gangster rap era yeah or flavor flav right that made me think of that a lot with all the the, the jewelry the showiness and you get i mean Yes, this is is by the the same writers that that did uh, Ed Wood and People versus Larry Flint and, and stuff like that. But a lot of this you know is I love yes about their bio, their biopics. No schmaltz. You're right. No schmaltz. This is but this one you also get to see. I mean, Rudy Ray Moore was successful with his X-rated party albums, right? With the comedy albums first before deciding to do a movie, and so you get to see kind of both those phases of his career and um apparently it's all very close to what happened with them having to make a deal with like a theater from a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy and it ends up like selling out and uh the whole thing about them doing the albums on the chitlin circuit and recording the album in a like kind of crappily in his <laughs> in his room and if you listen to that first album maybe they all were recorded this way but it has this really rough feel to this, this very charming you hear a lot of like glasses clinking in the background 
Well, I mean, that that was a, a form. It's really gone by the wayside now, but the the form was the party album. The idea was it was an album that you would play in the background of a party. And so it would have ambient noise like you might get at a cocktail party. But I think I think part of the idea, at least with the initial party albums, was you don't have to worry about music selection and you don't have to worry about sparkling conversation because the album will take care of that. It will always be giving you something to talk about or react to. But of course, with Rudy Ray Moore... He's he is such such an overblown personality that fuck the party. You're just going to listen to Rudy Ray Moore. It's not going to be background. Right. I mean, you cannot ignore Rudy Ray Moore and, and something Eddie Murphy does is good in a, a lot of his other movies, especially Beverly Hills Cop. He'll pretend like he's someone else and just walk in the room like he owns the place. And, and he does get a chance to do a lot of that. In fact, um, Murphy is so inspired and had so much fun working with the director Craig Brewer, he's working with him again on, on the sequel of Coming to America, which is going to uh. get a theatrical release. But also, interestingly, um, Paramount made a deal with Netflix where they can make Beverly Hills Cop 4, uh, and if it does well, Beverly Hills Cop 5. And Eddie Murphy's going to do that for Netflix afterwards. Huh. Um, at least one sequel, if not two, depending on how it does. But... And they've been trying to do Beverly Hills Cop 4 for a while. Um, <laughs> but coming to America's PG-13, what do you think about that? The second one is going to be PG-13, they said. Well, what was the first one? Was was, was R, but I don't think it was a was hard R. R. Huh. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess that's because it's strange, strangely enough, like coming to America, it's such a gentle R. Yes. It's... I, most most people of my age kind of regard it as like a family movie. It's like a modern, it's like a modern fairy tale uh, mm-hmm. centered more on the prince than the princess. Yeah. Uh, ever everyone like I know who saw it first saw it when they were kids uh, to begin with, and it uh, runs on cable all the time. Huh. I I don't know. Like I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna hurt the movie to be PG thirteen. Although at the same time. I, I, it, it could really use like what is it like like damn fuck to you too like it I, I I hope that kind of humor doesn't get lost because that worked so well in the first film. I think you can say fuck now in a PG thirteen movie as long as it's not in a sexual context. You can say it once because <laughs> um oh god I hate movie ratings. As I was reminded when I did my Ready Player One uh, panel at the Portland Retro Gaming Convention, they say oh fuck it's Chucky. Which, in that movie, I don't think that's completely needed. I mean, that's really more like a a family picture. Hmm. But... You know, it's funny, they don't have any future slang. Oh, doesn't that annoy you, though? Especially when you read books where it's like, instead of calling it coffee, we pick up the the hot space chocolate and drink it for breakfast. It it depends. Uh, it, it really does depend. Like like for, first and foremost, like I feel like the key to good future slang is one: the slang can't take long, shouldn't take longer to say than the actual word. So like, I'll actually I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Dan Abinett's uh, Warhammer Forty Thousand novels. In those novels, characters don't drink coffee; they drink recaf. Which is great. You don't need an explanation of what it is because caffeine is part of the name. But but coffee, two syllables. Recaf, two syllables. 
that that's an example i think of a good future slang well recaf somehow doesn't sound too silly it sounds um plausible kind of cool within that kind of setting yeah it's a really tough uh thing to balance well um and then you've been watching the mandalorian right oh yes yes i have did you see episode three yeah yes indeed i did it's uh it's pretty good i wonder um where it's gonna go i love the lack of dialogue you know, I'm I'm wondering if the the just the way these first three episodes are structured, in a sense, they all feel like one lengthy pilot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if the status quo established at the end of episode three is going to be the status quo throughout the rest of the season, or are they going to surprise us? And is the status quo going to continue to change at the end of every episode? Because I'll admit, I could go, I could be satisfied either way on that. <laughs> It definitely seems like it's taking its time as far as trying to do... Because when it started, I thought it would be like Cowboy Bebop or something, where he has a different mission every episode. And it's it's not really um, doing that necessarily. And he's, you know, now sort of a man on the run. So we'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm pleasantly surprised. And uh, the, the amount that the... Uh, I don't want to spoil it, but the amount that the alien character at the uh, from the first episode has exploded online and memes and stuff is really quite something. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see some. I'm sure we're going to see some merchandise uh, <laughs> for that uh, for that character. Yep. But also, uh, Deborah Chow, really strong direction in this episode. Uh, she's supposed to be coming back for uh, episode seven of this of this series. Cool. I heard um, what's the guy's name? Taika Waititi is going to be doing an episode as well. He is doing the season finale. Great. And he was the voice of the uh, the um, IG Eleven, IG Eleven robot, yeah. then, the first one. So hopefully, I c- I could go to see more of those. I would love to see him come back as different numbered IG units. I-, I bet you they'll bring it back somehow. Um, okay, so we're going to do our sequel scene. And uh, what character do you want to do? This is early on in, in the film and it's uh, professor van helsing talking to his former student dr garth i wobbly well, did you do van helsing last week yes i think i did uh i think i would like to do uh, van helsing this week okay very so, good so this is this is their meeting they're meeting unsupervised in garth's office and it's van helsing kind of explaining why he wants garth on his side as far as the dracula murder case is concerned all right um so Let's go, and yeah, it looks like there's no stage directions, so great. Um, I'm a psychiatrist professor, not a lawyer. I'd do anything in the world to help you, but what? You must convince them of my sanity. If I do that, they'll hang you for murder. You can't murder a man who's been dead for five centuries. Talking like that won't help. Uh, When you were a student under me in Vienna, Geoffrey, you had a far more open mind. My mind is just as open as it ever was, Professor. But it's a scientific mind. No place in it for superstition. Superstition? Who can find the boundary line between the superstition of yesterday and the scientific fact of tomorrow? In the history of your own profession, psychiatry, a century ago hypnosis was looked upon as black magic. Today, it is accepted as commonplace, even used in anesthesia. What would have happened to a man a hundred years ago who advanced the present-day theories of the subconscious? Oh, I know, I know. Do you, as an intelligent scientist, 
dare to dismiss as superstition the principles underlying Tibetan magic, voodooism, thought transference? No. Well, there you are. Apparently Dr. Garth is uh, Jimmy Stewart or something like that. But... I would I would love to know the principles underlying Tibetan magic, voodooism, and thought transference, though. Yeah, there's quite a lot to throw in there. Like, do you dare to dismiss these three different things that are highly complicated? Yeah. Um, the, that also reminds me of how that, like Van Helsing at one point, you know, I believe says the Countess is 100 years old. We have no idea how he knows that or if that's true, but... He's a fast again. Van Helsing continues to be a fascinating character. I'm glad. I'm also glad they brought the original actor back. Yep. So next week we'll be talking about the um, third and the uh, final film of the Dracula trilogy from Universal, Son of Dracula, which came out a whopping seven years after Dracula's daughter. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it. This has been a really fun trilogy so far. It has, and it introduces a uh, a character name that would later be used again and again and again. A character named Alucard. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'll say I'll save it for then, but I do. I think we should we should talk about the we should talk a bit about uh, Al, the name Alucard, but also other vampire name anagrams. Yeah, well, I think you know uh, on the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal podcast, he was pointing out Son of Dracula, and that there's a scene where they they have a chalkboard and point out that Dracula or that Alucard is Dracula backwards. Because the audience is too stupid to figure that out. <laughs> well, what's crazy, though, is that that keeps getting used often in that same exact way. Yeah. And they still expect, they still act like the audience is going to be shocked to find out, even though now it is cliche. You know, the only time I can think of that really working is in Back to the Future 2, when uh, Doc breaks out a chalkboard and uh, Kai tries to explain the different timelines. Because that is a very... <laughs> complicated and confusing even if you're paying attention to all the movies so to have that is is nice so one of my favorite mad magazine parodies when mad magazine did back to the future 2 uh they had instead of doc explaining the timelines with the chalkboard they had john madden explain the timeline oh that makes sense sure and it was all done in the john madden voice it was very very well executed great um was that on Mad TV? Frank Caliendo did a good John Madden. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he was their resident impressionist, but yeah, Caliendo did uh, did a pretty intense John Madden. You take out the butter packet. Yeah, they, yeah, they would keep having him hawk different products that would end disastrously. <laughs> hey. So anyway, look for the Mad TV cast uh, oh, uh, coming never. Yeah, um, follow me on Twitter at matwbt. Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Review the show on Apple Podcast. Um, you can also listen to us on Stitcher. And just recently, I added us to Spotify, so you can listen to us on there as well if you so desire. Uh, so, yep, um, Son of Dracula is what we're doing next time uh, for Sequel Cast Two. This is Matt, and this is Thrasher. Saying, why don't you come in from the cold and have a nip of the all right? Oh, it's Dracula's daughter. It is. It is. Up the apples and pears. I'm going to give her a garlic sandwich. See how she fancies it. Oh, me neck. Me neck. It hurts bloody awful, it does. Why, oh, that, why are you bleeding into a pint glass? Oh, no, the pint glass went away. Someone drank your blood from a pint glass. Chim, chimity, chim, chimity, chim, chim, churu. You better watch out. Dracula's coming for you. It's a right smack ain't, isn't it? 
We're trapped as recursive cockneys. Help. <laughs> <laughs>